I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to the 60th episode of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah Hashgato. Sarah is a Hungarian natural dyer and small-scale grower based in Budapest, Hungary. Over the past year, she's been collaborating with the rural eco-community to grow natural dye plants and run small-scale experiments in which she repurposes vintage garments with natural dyes. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Lashan. Thank you very much for having me on. Can you start out by telling us a bit about yourself and sharing how you found your way to textiles? Um, I've been working um, professionally with natural dyes for the past seven years. Um, before that, I had a jewelry brand where I was um, dyeing uh, or working with rather uh, a lot of um, fibers and um, embroidery floss making um, tassel-based accessories and uh, it increasingly began to bother me that I don't have um, insight into the way uh, these materials are um, produced and what the dyes are and uh, you know uh, what the metals are that I was using in the chains and in the metal accessories. Um, So I began to look into what I could um, do as an alternative and um, first I began to dye uh, the the yarns and uh, the floss with um, uh, you know these uh, Kool-Aid and drink powders uh, that you have yeah <laughs> <And> I was <laughs> really surprised by the super intense colors that I was getting uh, it began to make me think about you know how safe is this to drink and yeah. um, and and not just to dye stuff with, but but to actually consume it. Uh, so um, I began to look further and um, do research about natural alternatives. And I found that uh, there is a huge abundance of natural materials that are uh, perfectly safe and and beautiful, uh, which you can use to color textiles with. So this is this is pretty much how it all started. Wow, that's so interesting. And how did you learn to use natural materials and natural dyes? Uh, well, it, it's, it was so exciting for me when I embarked on this path into learning more about uh, natural dye plants and, and the materials that you could use to color textiles. Uh, I, I met um, some really interesting people. Uh, for example, a, a past um, schoolmate of mine was learning um, horticulture. And she actually did her thesis on on a specific dye plant, which I didn't know about before. And uh, so I read her dissertation on the topic and uh, she introduced me to a man. um, He's an IT expert who does um, sort of historical reenactment. And they they have an interest in, in doing things as authentically as possible. So they were learning all about coloring textiles the way our ancestors did, hundreds of years ago and uh, he began to teach me a lot. Uh, he was very generous with passing on his, his wealth of knowledge about dye plants. Um, so I began to go to his house, watch how he was working with these, these materials. And um, and of course I did tons of experimentation and, and read 
really old um, recipes and and sort of delved more into how um, contemporary designers and makers and folk artists were still using these techniques. Wow. And how do you source the natural materials that you use? Um, well, I'm, I'm not really um, strict about only using local materials. So I have really uh, a curiosity about seeing, you know, um, we, we are based in Europe, in, in Hungary, specifically Central Europe. Um, so there is a, a lot of um, uh, materials that you can use and find locally and grow. Uh, but there are also some exotic materials that, for example, from um, Asia or from Latin America uh, that I am uh, also uh, curious about. So I try to find um, sustainable and fair trade uh, uh, suppliers of these exotics and some uh, I grow um, in my parents' garden, which I've sort of <laughs> taken over a little bit, <laughs> but they are they are very willing to let me experiment. And uh, last year, we started a, an exciting collaboration with an uh, an eco village, uh, an eco community. They are based um, in rural Hungary in a in a tiny village, uh, only about three hundred people living there locally. And and this eco community started to. Uh, establish a village there and they have a community house and garden and in their garden we started uh, growing 10 um, dye plants to see what works in that specific climate what uh, so we don't want to interfere in any way by using you know pesticides and insecticides and things like that so trying to see what what works in that specific climate and uh, and it's looking very promising and when we have quite high hopes for this uh, new experiment and collaboration. Wow. And what kind of dye plants are you growing? Uh, there, um, we started with the three uh, historical classical dye plants that were used in Europe are madder, uh, weld and woad. These are the three. And we have uh, started all three. The interesting thing is that, for example, madder you need to grow for at least three or four years because you use the root of that specific plant to extract the dye. And uh, it takes time for the plant to grow uh, and mature enough to be able to harvest the uh, roots that uh, you need for the dyeing. So uh, these are the three main ones. Uh, we also have a... a of the indigo plants, which are the historic blue um, dye yielders, uh, we have a Japanese type that sort of works in our climate. Um, we have to be very careful, it seems, with the frost damage issue because our winters um, tend to start uh, quite early um, when, you, when you compare it to the subtropics <laughs> where the plant originates from. Uh, so... Um, so we need to be careful with the frost damage because the seeds uh, are very, very sensitive. So um, in a, to be able to harvest uh, seeds, we actually had to transplant some of the plants into greenhouses to, to protect them. Uh, and we also have a lot of uh, flowering uh, plants that um, pollinators really seem to like. Uh, cosmos, Coreopsis, uh, Dyer's Chamomile. And there are a lot of... Um, uh, sort of local plants that uh, also are 
very useful for dyeing. These are like things like goldenrod and St. John's wort, which we didn't plant, but we have available there anyway. So those we just um, sustainably harvest uh, when we need them. Wow, that's super interesting. You know, Hungary has such a very interesting and beautiful history when it comes to textiles. Has that influenced your textile and dyeing process? Yes, uh, I've been um, trying to find uh, makers who have uh, roots in the folk uh, textile traditions of our of our country and our our history. And um, uh, for example, uh, I love working with vintage linens. Uh, we did have a, a history of um, producing hemp and um, and later flax for linen, uh, but the textile industry in itself has been pretty much obliterated <laughs> unfortunately you know over communism and then the following privatization um, uh, era so so these things but there are new initiatives was where they are trying to rebuild this industry and there are um, now projects for for growing hemp and for growing flax for textile making purposes but it's a long and tedious road Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because we've had quite a few people who work in the realm of um, organic natural textiles who come from a similar story where the industry has sort of fallen to the wayside, but there's mm-hmm. this resurgence. And um, I'm curious as to like, what are some of the reasons that that may have happened in Hungary? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think uh, the textile, I mean, for example, with the, uh, what I'm seeing is that in the past few years, there is this new trend towards finding and, and strengthening local infrastructure. But um, in the past 10, 20 years, uh, with the import of really cheap Chinese mass-produced textiles. Uh, People, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, price is an issue. Uh, You, you, of course, uh, uh, if you have to uh, support uh, local labor and and pay the fair cost of production to to your workers, it will be more expensive than than if you take advantage of them and, and, you know, uh, treat them as modern day slaves. <laughs> and uh, and um, so I think price is definitely an issue over the past um, decades that, that people are, are looking to um, purchase cheaper alternatives. So the, the higher quality um, and more labor and cost intensive production has um, been pushed to the side. Mm, yeah. That's super interesting. That's it. I guess what's what's intriguing to me about that is that it just seems to be such a common thread amongst every person that I talk to and every mm-hmm. um, in in every place and every country. I've spoken to people in such a wide variety of climates and um, countries. So, you know, it's very interesting to hear that. Um, but kind of going back to talking about your dye process. What is what is the process that it takes to turn some of your dyes into? Uh, well, what is the, the plants process into dyes? Some of your plants, 
of <laughs> taking some of your plants and turning them into dyes? Uh-huh. Uh, well, there are different methods that you can try. And um, what I like uh, particularly about this type of dyeing is that you don't really need an industrial or super specific setup or, or you know, to, to get started. You can do it literally in your own kitchen with an unused pot and, and, and begin. So, uh, and depending on how you want to proceed from there, of course, you can get more professional and serious and invest into the supplies and equipment, but you can start off um, doing it quite basic. Um, the the most um, simple and common way of extracting color from or, or dye um, materials from plants is a kind of immersion dyeing. So you um, basically <laughs> simmer your plant material, um, discard the, the material stuff, and you have a, a clear liquid that you can soak your fibers or textiles in. And with time uh, and with heat, <laughs> uh, the color is extracted and, uh, and uh, uh, it, it maintains, uh, uh, the, the fibers maintain the color. I mean, you can, of course, um, go into mordanting, which is a way of... Um, using supplementary materials to enhance this connection between the dye material and the fiber. Um, and of course, there are other processes of um, transferring color and the imprint of the, of the plant onto the textile. Um, you can use bundle dyeing where you work with uh, steam and not actually immersing your fabric in the, um, in the liquid dye. Uh, you, uh, it's a technique called eco-printing. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, uh, it's where you um, allow the plants to uh, leave a, a print on the textile. Um, of course, you can also make inks from your plants where you use um, um, things like a, a binder material uh, materials or um, you can use... A, um, Vat uh, dyeing techniques, for example, with indigo, which is a different kind of chemical uh, process that takes place um, to to actually color your textiles. So, when you are dyeing with plants that don't require a mordant, do you use a mordant? And if so, what kind of mordants do you use? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there are um, uh, materials or uh, plants which don't require the use of a, a mordant, uh, which sort of uh, um, there, uh, this additional chemical reaction is not needed for the uh, plant material to um, and, and the, the extracted color to remain on the on the fabric. But when you do use uh, mordants, you can use natural tannin-rich uh, uh, plant-based uh, mordants, for example, walnut uh, or acorns or sumac leaves have a high tannin content, which you can use to uh, to enhance this uh, bond between the co the coloring agent and the, the cloth. Uh, and there are also metal salts which you can use. The most common used by natural dyers is alum, which is an aluminum salt. Um, and um, the only other um, metallic <laughs> uh, mordant I use is ferrous sulfate, but uh, some materials, so animal-based fibers, uh, are really damaged by ferrous sulfate. So uh, I only use um, 
this agent in um, in cellulose um, uh, materials, so linen, cotton, hemp, and only tiny, tiny amounts. In, in historic mm. recipes, you find um, the use of um, copper sulfate and tin and chrome and other heavier metal salts, which which are also used as um, as mordants. But I, I don't tend to use those. Mm. And do you have a favorite? dye plant that you are particularly drawn to? Uh, yeah, madder would have to be my absolute favorite. <laughs> um, yeah, madder uh, is gorgeous. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and it's really diverse. And it's it's one of, you know, it's one of the historic dye plants. And I think it's, uh, it's a really nice um, example of the slow nature of natural dyeing that you have to wait years for the roots to grow. And you have to tend your plant and uh, and feed it. You know, it, it prefers a, a, a lime-rich soil. So you have to kind of, you know, give it what it needs. And and then the, the colors you get are really, really beautiful. And uh, even the smell of, of uh, the, the uh, dye material when you've dried it and ground it, it it's so nice and comforting. <laughs> <laughs> So I think yes, that's wow. that's that's my favorite. So, are there any fabrics that you like particularly that you use often when you're dyeing naturally? Uh, my favorites would have to be linen and uh, silk. I've uh, managed to uh, find vintage linens um, hand woven, which Ooh. are really a pleasure to work with. You know, you really kind of feel the history that the cloth has. Uh, I I love working with vintage textiles anyway. I have um, uh, a new project that I've been doing for one and a half, two years now that I find uh, vintage garments in in natural and white uh, neutral colors. And I dye them with with, uh, plant dyes. And uh, the the materials that you can find are really exquisite, you know. Uh, They would be super expensive to buy nowadays. Uh, so working with vintage is something that I really love, uh, and then um, silk for its beautiful sheen uh, is is unpaired. So that's uh, um, another joy to work with. And how do you source these vintage fabrics? Uh, I have now friends who are always coming to me and and saying, "Okay, I inherited this uh, piece from my grandma, but I, I you know it." doesn't suit my wardrobe or I don't feel comfortable wearing it as it is or it has a little stain or something like this uh, and then um, then we upcycle it and, and turn it into something that's um, really wearable nowadays uh, and uh, I go to a lot of flea markets and um, vintage clothes shops uh, we have quite a few of those actually in Budapest and around um, the country where you can go and uh, and I it's a treasure hunting process that I also love. <laughs> yeah, I love thrifting. It's one of the best ways to find interesting things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, they say that um, fashion trends sort of repeat themselves every 20, 30 years. So uh, these vintage pieces are actually what the big <laughs> makers are are designing nowadays so it's you know it's uh it's a a good way to recycle yeah it's so true it's so true 
You mentioned earlier that you work with um, a rural community and that you also grow in your parents' garden. Can you kind of talk about the ways in which you foster community and and work with people and create workshops? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, uh, working with this um, community, this eco-community has been um, really rewarding and um, it's helped me a lot to um you know understand the ways in which you can um go into an existing quite traditional and uh, in a way conservative local community and and bring new ideas and new methods which are actually not the new they are the 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 ways of our ancestors in a way and uh so for example the 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 principles of permaculture and uh, and and you know, uh, working in harmony and uh, in cooperation with nature and not trying to um, introduce uh, foreign elements and and, uh, chemicals. Um, These are, you know, these are the more historic ways of approaching agriculture, for example. But uh, in a way, these are skills and and ideas and uh, coping mechanisms that you sort of have to reintroduce (laughs) to to the farming community in a way. Um, because, uh, of course, if you spray everything with uh, insecticides, it's potentially it's more uh, effective. But uh, in the long term and in what it does to our waters, our wildlife, our bodies, uh, it, it's of course, you can't, you know, um, compare the two approaches, but it's slower. It's uh, it requires um, understanding, attention you know, looking for the bugs that appear on a plant and, and things like that. So it's um, uh, it's a different kind of approach. And uh, um, there isn't necessarily um, a straightforward openness to this, to this new, um, uh, new wave, <laughs> or how should I put it? Um, so, uh, um, but I think um, as people um, there also see uh, these methods, they they become curious. For example, um, my parents uh, started a, a raised bed in their garden. It's um, on the outskirts of Budapest, but it's still in Budapest. It's still in the capital. And they were just telling me that one of their next door neighbors is also now planning to do a, a raised bed. <laughs> now that they've seen, you know, uh, so I think it's a, uh, you have an influence on your surroundings, on your community. And then, these kind of um, softer approaches uh, do have an impact. Uh, it may be time and, and it may be um, uh, sharing knowledge and, and sharing experiences and, and, you know, opening other people's eyes to your ways of doing things, but I think it has an impact. And um, uh, on, on um, an education level, I'm, I'm doing a lot of workshops, teaching people about this natural alternative and this natural um, approach to fabric manipulation and, and, and coloring fabrics. And um, I, I think that uh, if you're um, doing something like this, which is in a way concerned, uh, in a way um, considered um, alternative or innovative, which it isn't, it, this is the more <laughs> historic way of, or the more, natural and organic way of, uh, of working with textiles. But in this environment nowadays, this is, you know, the, the odd thing to be doing. Uh, so you have a responsibility of, uh, 
of sharing this knowledge and educating your surroundings and and opening it to children and and it's interesting how um uh, many of my um um students who come to te- who come to learn um natural dyeing uh in these workshops that I do uh one of the uh phases in their lives where they turn to uh to have an interest in natural dyeing is when they have small children uh or they've just become mothers and they're thinking about you know how their baby's skin is going to absorb the chemicals in their clothing and um and the educators themselves the so teachers i have a lot of teachers coming to my courses who are uh interested in showing young kids you know alternatives and natural ways of of um of of working with textiles and and um uh yeah so uh, uh i think it's very rewarding for me and it's very uh, it, it 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 has an importance that's awesome. It's amazing. You might have just answered it, but um, as a natural textile artist, what role do you feel that you play in the larger textile and fashion community? Well, I think um, uh, uh, you have a you have a responsibility of sharing this um, this knowledge, which is. Uh, um, for many people, it's new and it's strange. And I mean, for example, when I'm doing um, trade shows or uh, going to a design market to exhibit my things, everybody turns because the colors that they see are different from what they're used to, you know? So mm-hmm. there is a, a, a more subtle um, palette of colors that they see, which, which at first they maybe they don't understand what it, what why it's different, but they're interested and they are... So I sort of see that there is immediately this sensory connection with with the, these kind of colors so once um, the colors grab their attention I can start to engage them in why this is different why it's um, maybe a um, more sustainable alternative um, so I think um, and and it's really great to see now that um, I have um, collaborations going with for example a menswear designer who wants to introduce this into their work, and um, uh, I did some custom dyeing of vintage linens that she found, um, and uh, and she's now in building it into her collection. And I see that um, uh, even if I'm um, looking at it from a very uh, selfish viewpoint, for me to be able to um, reach a wider audience, I have to educate my audience. You know, that that's mm-hmm. how I <laughs> I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, I do free demonstrations, and I, I where I hope to reach more people. I've gone to kindergartens to have children pounding away at textiles. There is a technique where you literally take a um, plastic hammer and and pound the the flowers into the fabric, and they loved it. You know, it's a really <laughs> great stress relief uh, technique. Um, but I mean, if you if you can engage uh, people's interest and 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 you know um, sort of show them how uh, this is a way of really connecting with your surroundings, really uh, seeing plants from a different perspective, for uh, and respecting you know the seasons, the the way that not all plants are available all year round. So you have times when you are doing more dyeing and periods of the year when you are doing more processing of the dyed uh, fabrics. 
So I, I really like this um, this return to sort of the traditional way a year was built up. That in the summer you were doing more active work, and in in the autumn winter months you were doing the processing, the weaving, the the spinning of the fibers. So I I really like this um, this. Uh, a uh, slow uh, pace of life. Uh, it's quite difficult to implement <laughs> in nowadays in this <laughs> super rushed way of life that we are living. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been really great talking to you today and um, you've provided so many wonderful insights. Is there any way that people can reach you and see your work via the internet? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun chatting with you. Uh, I have a um, social media account. So I have um, Instagram and Facebook. Um, Hello Botanica is, uh, is the name of my accounts. And um, I'm setting up my um, uh, website and uh, web shop, uh, which is coming about in a month or so. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And if anybody's ever in Budapest, we have a little downtown studio with a couple of maker friends of mine. So um, I'd, I'd love to welcome everybody and, and, and show you, you know, what, what Budapest has to offer in terms of natural textiles and, and uh, the creative scene here. Awesome. And do you have any new projects that you're working on that you'd like to let our audience know about? Uh, I'm working with the vintage uh, garments uh, uh, and uh, I'm launching a new mini collection of um, uh, beauty related um, products. So eye masks and uh, kimonos, so a little bit of leisure wear and um, and then headscarves and things like that. Um, but uh, I'm continuing, you know, working and, and exploring natural dyes and and. Every season there is something new that I haven't tried yet and uh, I see um, around me all the, all the new plants that I still have to discover and, and find more out more about. Cool. So the last question before you go is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Wow. <laughs> um, what I'm finding that um, what keeps me going and what keeps me inspired is uh, is times of, uh, of free experimentation. So I think it's really important that as a maker, you don't get so bound up in your daily grind that you don't have uh, time, you know, this free, playful uh, experimentation hours and days that, that you give to yourself to to be inspired, to get more creative, to get out of your daily grind. You know, I, I, that that for me is is really important. And I think it's difficult to allow yourself to have these moments or of creative inspiration where you can just, you know, uh, try something new. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be in your specific field of activity. You can you can go beyond and even just going to an exhibition or talking with an architect or, you know, trying to... Um, see different ways of thinking and different uh, ways of uh, solving problems is, is for me at least uh, is it really keeps me going and keeps me inspired and, and gives me new ideas and thoughts and energies. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much. 
Thank you very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's a wrap. Sarah offered a unique perspective of natural textiles and systems from across the globe. And I hope you all enjoyed listening in on our conversation. I suggest you follow her on social media as well as support the projects that she's working on. You can find links to her work as well as to workshops in our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 60. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Stefan Hamilton, an artist and arts educator living and working in Boston. Stefan's work incorporates both Western and African techniques blending figurative painting and drawing with resist dyeing, weaving, and wood carving. Tune in next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving!